Today's podcast is brought to you by the Freedom Day Dividend ETF. We know Ryan Kruger very well. Ryan and his team have been managing money for private clients through many market cycles since 1996. Their strategy is focused on finding companies with the potential to increase their dividends. Now, for the first time, they're offering an actively managed ETF for investors everywhere. The ticker symbol is MBOX, M-B-O-X, as in mailbox, designed for shareholders searching for opportunities to receive more mailbox money. The fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses must be considered carefully before investing. For this and other important information about the fund, please visit freedomdaydividend.com for a prospectus or summary prospectus. Read it carefully before investing. Welcome to Excess Returns, where we focus on what works over the long term in the markets. Join us as we talk about the strategies and tactics that can help you become a better long-term investor. Justin Carboneau and Jack Forehand are principals at Validia Capital Management. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Validia Capital. No information on this podcast should be construed as investment advice. Securities discussed in the podcast may be holdings of clients of Validia Capital. 2021 was a great year for us with the podcast. We were able to interview some of the smartest people we know and continue to grow our audience as a result of the many great insights our guests have provided. As has been the case since the beginning of the podcast, we've tried to focus on talking to investors who have a long-term track record of success and have tried to extract the major lessons all of us can learn from them. As we start the new year, we wanted to take a look back at 2021 and highlight some of the most important lessons we have learned from the interviews we conducted during the year. Here are the top 10 lessons we learned from our five most popular interviews of 2021. One of the mistakes we made as value investors earlier in our career is that we had too much exposure to value in the 2014-2015 period because we didn't recognize how expensive it was relative to growth using valuation spreads. We talked to Tobias Carlisle of the Acquirers Funds about what we can learn from that mistake and how to look at the transition in market regimes between value and growth going forward. I want to ask you, you know, you, we referenced spreads earlier and we referenced how the spread is very wide between growth and value. And, you know, one of the mistakes I made in my career is in 2014, 2015, I thought it was actually a good time to buy value. You know, value had done poorly in 14, it had done poorly in 15. You know, I thought it was actually attractive. But then when I learned more about these spreads, I realized, well, spreads were actually pretty narrow and growth was actually attractive then. And I'm wondering if that happens again, how do we think about that as a value investor? So, you know, right now, obviously, we think value is attractive. We want to buy value companies. What do we do if it narrows again? I mean, do we buy growth now that we know that? How do you think about sort of navigating that? Yeah, it's a great question. And it's the, the single thing that I beat myself up on most too, because I had the conversation, I, I wrote it on my blog, Jake Taylor, my podcast co-host. Um, we had this conversation in real time in 2015 on exactly that. We had this conversation and I said, value's so beaten up. I think it's a really good time to be a value investor. And he said, the spread between the most overvalued and the most undervalued is as narrow as it has been in 25 years. And he wrote an article about it and I posted it on Greenbank and then just didn't think through the implications of that. I just thought, well, value's evergreen, value will be okay. What I should have done at that point is realize that there were these very, very good high growth companies that were likely to become dominant available at the same price that you could pay for these cyclicals and heavy industry. And I should have had some uh means of identifying the better companies at a slightly you know an optically higher just at a higher price ratio and so that's you know i figured out that that was a mistake in about 2018 or 19 and so i've sort of spent that period since trying to get a little bit better at uh identifying the the better quality stuff the higher growing stuff the faster growing stuff you know that you could do it as simply as just looking at the spread and if it gets really tight then you probably want to be in the better stuff it would be that that's sort of that's one approach and i i will certainly use that 
I keep an eye on it to make sure that I'm, if that opportunity presents, I'll take that opportunity. But I, you, you, a better process than that would be to build it into the, the valuation process so that you, you don't really have to have any conscious decision at the time. You just, when that happens, it's just the portfolio just naturally transitions into those better companies. So that's, the, that's what I've been trying to do. And I'm writing, I'm writing a book now that's um, torturous and it's going to take bloody ages to get out, but uh, hopefully, and it's, it's, it's much more abstract than literally describing this process. But I, I do think that it's, it, that's the, that's the, that's the challenge, uh, particularly for, for value guys who've been burned through this last sort of five or 10 years to, to get position for the next transition. I think that the, the correct place to be now is in deep value, funnily enough, like it's, it's so beaten up that this is where you should be, but that's only going to persist for five or 10 years. There will be another transition period and, and it, maybe it's faster than that. Maybe the world just moves faster and you need to be in a position to take advantage of it. So it's the key to unlocking the next five, 10, 20 years. I don't know if I've fully sold it yet, but I'm, that's what I'm working on. You, you let me know if you figure it out, Jack. Well, it's interesting too, because it's not just the spread between value and growth, but also when you look at sort of value and high quality value. And, you know, that's one of the things I think you've alluded to it, but we noticed too is, you know, with this whole junk rally, you can get these quality companies for almost the same price as the low quality companies. And so having a process to, to identify that and say, all right, why would I buy this low quality company for the same valuation as this high quality company? That's something we're working on. It's still a work in process in progress, but that's something we're working on as well, because I think that's important as well. The challenge has always been that high growth has tended to fall apart. And so you, you need to, to discount high growth at a higher rate. And maybe that's changed. Maybe the nature of the internet, that network kind of effect means that you're going to get like Google. I don't really know how anybody's going to beat Google. I don't really know how anybody's going to beat Microsoft. My, my wife is a consultant who, who deals with um, the, the learning for a big consulting firm. And she said that the, the single course that gets taken more than any other course on a sort of exponential basis is people learning how to use Excel. So Excel is not going away anytime soon. Microsoft is well and truly embedded in the business ecosystem for a really long period of time. So, I, you know, Microsoft's probably bulletproof. Google's probably bulletproof. Apple, you know, less so, but probably still pretty hard to unseat. Facebook, you know, those, they're going to be around for a long time. Funnily enough, I think they're cheapish now, but that, that's the challenge, right? To figure it out, how do you transition away from two things that are maybe ratio expensive, but cheap on an intrinsic value basis. Passive investing has risen substantially as a portion of the total market in the past decade. What that means for investors who pursue active strategies has been subject to significant debate in the investing community. We asked Toby about what the rise of passive means, for those of us who pursue active strategies. Um, I want to shift and ask you about the market. You know, you, you alluded to meme stocks before. And, you know, one of the things I struggle with right now is this whole idea of, you know, people always say this time is different and usually it's not different, but there are a lot of things going on right now where this time might be a little bit different. And I wanted to go through some of them with you and, and have you maybe give your opinion on whether you think that's actually true. Um, and, and the first one is this whole idea that, and you know, this has sort of shifted a little bit after the pandemic, but this whole idea of the rise of passive investing. Um, I mean, do you think as, as those of us that are active investors, do you think there's anything we need to worry about with that? Anything we need to change about our approach because of this rise of passive investing? That's the Michael Green argument that um, the passive flows eventually overwhelm the act. So the, the function of an active manager is to sort of push things that are out of equilibrium back into equilibrium by buying stuff that gets too cheap, selling stuff that gets too expensive. And the index 
funds are um, they're agnostic to valuation all that they're investing on is their, their basis for investing is the, the absolute size of the company so the bigger companies attract the most flows which on a, on a float adjusted basis and then that pushes up the biggest companies the most and makes the smaller companies um, you know they, they, they tend to be starved of capital if you're outside the index that, that makes it even worse I I <sighs> I've never really been able to fully understand Michael's argument, and I've he's he's I've seen him explain it lots of times, and I've I've seen it. I don't know what is the difference between what he is saying about this current time and what has happened in every other time in the past, which is that folks follow whatever has been working. The S and P five hundred is the best performed index in the world. Every other world's index has fallen over. The US has been very strong. That index has been very good. We've gone through a period of time where unusually the biggest companies in the market have sort of defied these historical base rates for growth at a very large scale. So Amazon last year on $100 billion put up a 48% year-on-year comp, which is just an astonishing rate of growth for an already enormous company. Google's doing the same thing. Apple's doing the same thing. Facebook seems to have sustained its growth rates. All, all of these companies are really doing unusual things. And they make up the bulk of the index. They attract a lot of the capital. And I don't see necessarily um, why that's wrong. I think that, if anything, those bigger companies are slightly undervalued um, or at least fairly valued relative to the racier tech stuff in the market, which seems to be nosebleed expensive to me. Uh, you know, as a as a value investor, I, I can't help but feel that it's a good thing to have distortions in the market. And I don't understand why it's a bad thing for me as an active value investor. If the market was perfectly valid, uh, valued and the, market, the money was going where it should go, I'd have nothing to do because there'd be no opportunity. But as it is at the moment, there's plenty of opportunity around. There's dislocations everywhere. And that's, that's sort of how we make our money. We don't care so much about what the stock price is doing. What I'm trying to do is on those very rare occasions where pretty good companies get cheap enough and I can, with some sort of margin of safety built into it, I can see where those earnings, you know, consistent earning growers, where those are going to be in five or 10 years time based on what's happened in the last five or 10 years. And there's a point where for whatever reason, the market just gets a little bit upset with the company it happens all the time it happens to happens to apple happens to google it happened to apple and buffett came in and dropped 50 billion dollars in it and got a triple inside like 12 months which i still say is the greatest trade ever which is amazing for a 90 year old bloke to be you know slinging it around like that in such a gigantic company so if buffett can find those opportunities with his you know he's got there aren't very many things that move the needle for him if he can find it with his enormous capital stack then um you know, I, I, I can't believe that uh, me with my much smaller capital stack can't find many, many more opportunities for doing stuff. And, and I think that I can. And I, I, I hope that this uh, distortion continues in the market. I hope it continues on. And I hope that I'm able to just go around picking the pockets of the ones that fall out, falls out of the index. I'll buy it. I don't mind. We are currently seeing high levels of inflation for the first time in decades. To help us make sense of the current situation and put it in a historical context, we talked to our friend and favorite macro expert, Colin Roach. Cullen was one of the few who predicted that quantitative easing would not cause inflation as many predicted. We asked Cullen why that is. One of the things I want to add, and we talked about this the first time you were, you were with us, but I think it would be good just to, to sort of look at this again or talk about this again, which is um, after the financial crisis, so this was 2008, 2009, 
um, and the government stepped in. But then you had a lot of the, uh, you know, the Fed basically was implementing, you know, quantitative easing or monetary stimulus. And I was one, you know, when I would look at the Fed balance sheet then, and it was like went from less than a trillion to maybe four trillion. And I don't know when it was 2012, 2013, right around that period of time, if I have my timing right. I was like, oh, inflation's coming. This is, you know, now now it's here. You know, rates are going to go up. And, you know, it never materialized. And, you know, why why is that in your mind? So my argument back then basically was that what something like quantitative easing does at an operational level is pretty simple. It basically, so think of it outside of all of the, the government's other actions. Actually, think of it inside of a situation where the government is running a surplus. So the, the government is actually taxing more than it's spending in, in, in this environment. And then you have the Fed is out there doing quantitative easing. Well, what's technically happening is that the aggregate government is issuing now fewer bonds. They're actually taxing more than they're, than they're spending. So they're actually taking money out of the private sector to a certain degree. And what the Fed is doing then is the Fed is taking the composition of the existing private sector assets and they're merely changing them because what quantitative easing does is quantitative easing involves the Fed expanding their balance sheet. They create reserves or deposits and they swap them. They go out and buy bonds. And so the, the Fed is actually buying the bonds, taking them out of the private sector, putting them on their balance sheet, which is functionally it's not a, a balance sheet that's in the economy. So they're removing these bonds and they're swapping them with cash. So it's almost like a situation where they're essentially swapping your bond account into like a checking account, a deposit account now. And the question is, is like when you, if you were to swap a savings account for a checking account, well, would you go out and spend more money? I mean, in all likelihood, you know, in your mind, you have the same exact amount of money you actually have lower income because now you're earning less interest on your account. And so what the Fed does is at an operational level is very similar to that operation of changing a, a savings account into a checking account. And so outside of the rest of the government's actions, there's no real operational reason for this to cause high inflation, even though, you know, we kind of get into the whole discussion before about definitions and like the government is technically creating more money, but they're also removing bonds. And so, you know, just because they're adding more money, does it mean that we have more financial assets? No. So that's really the kicker there is that at, at the Fed specific level, they're not doing anything that on its own should cause a lot of inflation. Whereas my tone has been very different in the last like three years since COVID in, was initiated, mainly because, not because of what the Fed was doing, but because of what the government, the treasury was doing. The treasury spent, you know, $3 trillion in 2020 and then 2021 again. And so these are real measurable balance sheet increases where the government is now, they're literally printing new bonds and issuing them. So they're, they're issuing new financial assets that the private sector now holds on their balance sheet. So in a way, if you, if you think of it, if you wanted to say that um, the government prints assets or think of it, a better example is thinking of the treasury as, as literally printing money rather than bonds to finance their deficits. Well, that's the situation where you actually have a huge increase in the private sector financial asset balance. It's not so much about what the Fed is doing. It's more about what the aggregated government is doing. And so the Fed, in a lot of ways, they come in after the fact and they change the composition, but they don't necessarily increase the composition on their own. And so that's the big difference between 2008 and 
2020 is that the treasury in 2008 they did a lot i think they 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 ran like the you know the recovery act was something like an 800 billion dollar program but it was nothing compared to what they did in 2020 where i mean the covid relief packages and the the subsequent stimulus packages were humongous and i think that's the main reason why we're seeing a a big difference in the inflationary impact of the covid uh response versus the financial crisis response the rising levels of inflation have led some to believe that things could get much worse and we could see 1970s-style inflation or even hyperinflation. Cullen helped us understand why those two scenarios are not as likely as many think. So when, when you, you spend so much, uh, too much time on Twitter, as I do, you know, one of the things you can end up with is a lot of these people who are maybe blowing inflation a little bit out of proportion. And so I want to ask you about two things they've been saying and maybe see if you can maybe explain why those maybe are not likely scenarios. And the first is the idea that we're seeing a repeat of the 1970s. And so I'm wondering if you can maybe talk about why what we're seeing now is maybe different than what we saw in the 1970s. Well, it... To be honest, it's, it really comes down to those trends that we talked about earlier. So, you know, I wrote a big hyperinflation piece uh, a couple of days ago, and the four factors that I mentioned that ha are having this big secular, you know, suffocating effect on long-term inflation is demographics, technology, inequality, and globalization. And basically, none of those things were a problem in the 1970s. And so you didn't have this, these big macro downward trends that were causing the rate of inflation to be sort of naturally low. And, and I think that's the, you know, outside of like a situation where, let's say that like the MMT people take control of the economy in the next few years and, you know, the, or the AOCs of the world take control of the economy, you start seeing these perpetual $3 trillion programs every single year that would probably cause a, a, a high inflation environment. Um, not a, maybe not a hyperinflation, but it wouldn't shock me in that sort of a scenario where you saw sustained huge government programs. It would not surprise me if that led ultimately to a 1970-style environment. But outside of that, where you know, anytime we have these big fiscal packages, as soon as they get unwound, just like in 2010, those big four deflationary trends they start taking hold of everything. And that's where you start seeing the mean reversion in the rate of inflation outside of government policy that it causes ultimately the rate of inflation to slow because all four of those factors are just, they're so big that outside of huge um, sort of counter cyclical fiscal policies against those, you it's, it's pretty hard to imagine an environment where we get a sustained inflation because those four factors are just, they're, they are so humongous. You, you mentioned hyperinflation, and I know you sort of had a little back and forth with Jack Dorsey uh, on Twitter recently when he, he mentioned the term. He, he sort of said we might be headed for hyperinflation here. And I'm wondering, you know, one of the great things you did in your piece is you sort of defined what hyperinflation is, and you sort of talked about, like, what it looks like on the streets of a country when hyperinflation is happening. And I'm wondering if you could just talk about that a little bit, because I think people who are using that term may not totally understand what it means. Yeah, well, back and forth is a pretty generous way of <laughs> describing my interaction with Jack Dorsey, because I... I I retweeted him and then like like probably nine hours later, he wrote a question mark. And then my, my phone became unusable for like basically 24 hours. And it was just filled with, with basically Bitcoin people telling me how much I'm, I'm horrible at everything in the world. Um, so, but yeah, I mean, hyperinflation is a, uh, people in the developed world, 
I mean, have no idea how horrible a hyperinflation is. I mean, you think the financial crisis was bad. The financial crisis is a cakewalk compared to what a hyperinflation does. A hyperinflation is essentially, I mean, the definition is not, there isn't like a, a specific definition, but I think of it as basically like a 50% plus rate of inflation, where again, going back to you know that example I used earlier, the price of the goods and services that you're buying, they're, they might literally be changing while you're holding them. And that's what a hyperinflation is. The hyperinflation is not, oh, my margarita costs, you know, $8 now and it used to cost six. It's while you're drinking the margarita, the margarita literally changes in price. And that's how bad it is. And more importantly, usually you're not even drinking margaritas during a hyperinflation. Most of the people that are involved in a hyperinflation, they might be having trouble getting their hands on water, literally. So like, these are incredibly traumatic, really horrible events. They usually, like I wrote a paper following the, the financial crisis because I did a ton of research on this topic back then. And I basically concluded that the, the majority of hyperinflations in the world, they tend to occur around really specific, really horrible geopolitical events. And it's typically losing a war, having huge amounts of foreign denominated debt where a foreign country basically comes to you and is like, you know, pay me back now or um, we're gonna invade you. And like the, the Germans went through this after World War II where they had huge amounts of, of foreign denominated debt. The Russians went through the same thing when they had, a, they had a regime change and they had huge foreign denominated debts in the ruble and they had to repay these debts and they had to do so by printing money. And so, um, that third one there is regime change where these are literally like the government gets toppled and you bring in a whole new regime. And so those tend to be the three big environments where you get hyperinflations and it's literally a complete collapse of the national currency. So the USA, I mean, as much as we all seem to kind of hate each other right now, I don't think that we're on the verge of like a civil war or like a regime change. Maybe I'm wrong. I hope not, but like that would be the type of environment where you see this really, really horrible, horrific geopolitical event that coincides with uh, essentially a collapse of the domestic currency. As our regular listeners know, we are big believers in systematic value investing. We believe that the evidence supports that belief. But it's also important to understand that value outperforming in the future is not a certainty. We talked to GMO's head of asset allocation, Ben Inker, about his paper on the miss in the value and growth debate. But before we cover those myths, he made the important point that value's future about performance isn't a guarantee. Just to start, we thought it would be good to maybe set the stage where you could just talk more about the long-term evidence of investing in value stocks and the outperformance value stocks have given values outperformance over time. Sure. Uh, <clears throat> I guess, you know, the, the meta point uh, even though the historic evidence that value has outperformed in the long run is quite strong, you can see it in the Fama French data, which goes back uh, 100 years, you can see it pretty much every country around the world where there is decent historic data uh, for uh, individual stock returns, that it, a strategy focused on buying, let's say, the cheap half of the market on a variety of different measures uh, and rebalancing that portfolio on a yearly basis uh, or more frequently has outperformed. However, there is no intrinsic right that means value must outperform. <clears throat> if value outperforms in the long run, 
it means one of two things. One, there is some kind of market inefficiency. These stocks are too undervalued. Uh, and there have been a number of, of different ideas about what drives that and, and, the, and the permanence of, of that behavior. The other possibility, which uh, various um, uh, writers have talked about, is, well, maybe this long-term outperformance, which we've seen lots of places around the world, is actually a, uh, a premium given to you for taking on additional risk. Uh, and value stocks are, let's say, are inherently riskier than growth stocks or have some other negative feature to their return set. Uh, and in order to get investors to be prepared to take that negative uh, circumstance, uh, you've got to give them a higher return. So when I look at the world, it is not necessarily the case. I don't believe that they're necessarily has to be an outperformance by value in the very long run. Um, I think there very well could be uh, because most places around the world, uh, pretty much everywhere where you've got good long-term data, it has outperformed. I think there's some decent uh, kind of psychological reasons why investors might favor growth stocks uh, too much. Um, but what I'd say would be really weird from my standpoint is living in a world where value permanently underperformed. Um, because in order for that to be the case, growth stocks would have to be priced on average too cheaply, right? People would have to say, oh, I don't want to own those growth stocks. I need to be bribed to own those growth stocks. That would feel weird. Um, and so what I would say about kind of the long-term future of value, I think value's opportunity right now is really good because the discount value stocks are trading at everywhere around the world is much wider than normal. I think there's a decent shot that value outperforms not just on this, let's say, next five-year basis, but over the next hundred years. There's a possibility it won't. I think it would be a very weird world if over the next hundred years, growth stocks were to systematically outperform value. One of the biggest issues all of us face who are value investors is the issue of value traps. No matter how hard we try to filter them out, there will still always be companies in our portfolios where the situation is even worse than it seems. But the good news is we aren't alone. Ben explained why growth investors can also sometimes be exposed to traps. Your fourth point was my favorite one because as a value investor, one of the things people always attack me on is this whole idea of value traps. And you know, we, we end up with some of the, with some terrible companies in our portfolio where things aren't better than you know the market expects. They're actually worse, and and we end up holding these. You know, in order to get the value premium, we end up holding some of these bad companies. And and you introduced this idea in here. I'll read your point. Your point was value investing is hamstrung by value traps. Companies that continually disappoint and take up space in that portfolio, costing you money. Won't that always be the case? And you introduced the idea of a growth trap, which is that it's not just me as a value investor that's subject to these problems, but it's also growth investors. So I'm wondering if you could talk about that point and also what a growth trap is. Sure. Uh, in, in order to be able to define a growth trap, we needed to first figure out, well, what exactly do we mean by a value trap in the first place? Uh, and we had some uh, internal discussions uh, at, at GMO about this, and, and we came up with this very simple idea. A value trap at heart is a company that is significantly less cheap than you thought it was because the future fundamentals wind up being a lot worse than you were expecting. Uh, and so in order to define that in a straightforward way, 
uh, we decided to look for companies that did two things. One is uh, over the course of a 12 month period, their revenues wound up disappointing relative to uh, the analyst estimates. And second, their future r revenues were revised down. So what we wanted to do was to say, not only is this a company where this year turned out to be a bad year, but also the fact that this year was a bad year turned out to have an impact on what you expect the future to be. So these are companies where people have said, ooh, this is worse than I thought, and that worseness is gonna last for a while. Um, now, in value traps, I think what investors usually complain about is, man, the thing I hate about you is not only do those stocks exist in your portfolio, but sometimes you hold on to them and they do it to you again. Um, and that doesn't really tend to happen much with growth managers. Now, the reason it doesn't tend to happen much in growth managers is if you are truly a growth manager, you're trying to buy the companies that you think are going to grow really fast, and a company turns out to be less growthy, you sell it. So it's not going to be there on mul multiple years in a row. But still, the fact that it turned out to not be as growthy as you hoped, and that's what we're defining as a growth trap, a company you bought under the assumption that it was growth that turns out to be less growthy. Um, those companies underperform by even more than the value traps underperform. And they are a pretty similar fraction of the total universe. In both cases, it's about 30% of the universe on average that turns out to be a trap in a given year. Uh, and so growth traps happen as often as value traps. They're even more painful to a growth portfolio. Uh, there may be less tendency to focus on them because maybe by the time you're looking at the portfolio, they're no longer there. Um, but they did hurt returns uh, along the way. I don't know if you if you found this, but one of the things I think maybe investors, one of the reasons I think they maybe don't like value traps as much, you know, or that they dislike them more, is basically this idea that with a value trap, you've got a company that's probably not in the greatest of shape, and you've got a stock that's not doing well. But with these growth traps, you know, the company might still be doing okay. It's just far behind, you know, what the market was expecting in growth, and so you end up with a bad stock, but you end up with a more decent company. So maybe people can you know live with those in their portfolio a little bit more, or something like that. Yeah, I think there's that. I think there's also the case that it is often, often the thing that causes a company to wind up in a value manager's portfolio is that it disappointed, man it, it disappointed investors beforehand. So, right, so let's say you are buying some, you know, bombed out company because you think it is cheap, right? It's, uh, I don't know, Wells Fargo has gone down because uh, Elizabeth Warren is saying we should break it up. Stock price goes down, you say, hey, this looks pretty cheap relative to the company. I think I want to buy it. Now, Wells Fargo is under that scrutiny because they did some bad things and those bad things hurt its share price before. So one of the reasons why people might be annoyed by the fact that you own Wells Fargo today is, well, look what Wells Fargo did. It, it underperformed. Um, and I don't like that. Um, but the reality is, you know, as a value manager, you bought a stock because you thought it was undervalued. Um, it very well got to be undervalued because it disappointed people.
Um, and that's okay for you as a value manager. I think a growth manager saying, yeah, this company has really disappointed people, but I really want to buy it because I think it's undervalued. That, that doesn't feel very growth managery. Now, I admit that's a slight caricature of what a growth manager necessarily does. A lot of them do care about valuations at some level. Um, but it's, there's, there's still some truth uh, to the oversimplification there. When we started the podcast, we made a list of the people we would most like to interview based on how much we have learned from their work. At the end of 2021, we were fortunate to speak with Michael Mobison, who was number one on that list. Michael has done more in-depth work on how to value companies than probably anyone, and we spent much of the interview covering that topic. We started by looking at the idea of using simple multiples to value companies. And here's what Michael said. I was looking at your expectation investing website. You know, one of the things a lot of investors tend to do is they try to shortcut the process and they try to use a simple valuation multiple to, to sort of get an idea of, you know, if a company is cheap or not. And I was reading your 10 rules of expectations investing on your website and you pushed back on that a little bit. And you, the quote was, the price to earnings multiple is not an analytical shortcut. It's an economic cul-de-sac. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about that and how you think about simple multiples. There's a little dramatic flair in that phrase, but, <laughs> but no, you're exactly right. I think that, you know, the point, the point I make over and over is that multiples are not valuation. Let me just stop there. Multiples are not valuation. They are a shorthand for the valuation process. And one should never confuse those two things, right? So the valuation process is the present value of future cash flows. Multiples are a shorthand. Now, what's good about multiples? What's good about shorthands in general, right? They save you time, right? And by the way, I should just be clear. I use multiples. If you and I were having a conversa casual conversation, we might, I would maybe drop multiples about a particular business, whatever. That's fine. But the key is that you understand the economic implications of the multiples that you're using. So you're saying, I think this should be a 15 times EBITDA or 30 times earnings. Uh, so that, what, what is that? What, what do I have to believe for those multiples to make sense? And so, as you know, we spent a lot of time writing about, we wrote a piece called, what does a PE multiple mean? We wrote a piece called, what does an EVD EBITDA multiple mean? Essentially creating a bridge between those multiples as people tend to use them and the, econo the underlying economic assumptions that you need to make in order for those to, to justify those multiples and just to be really explicit about those things. And, you know, as Watt the Motor in at New York University, sort of the Dean of Valuation, he's talked a lot about this. He's surveyed investor reports and he's found, or analyst reports, pardon me, and he's found that, you know, nine out of 10 rely predominantly on multiples. So this is how people tend to talk to one another. So again, as I tell my students at the end of the, you know, sort of the end of our valuation module, you have to sort of earn the rights to use multiples. You, you can use them, but earn the right. And, and the way you earn the right is to demonstrate that you understand the underlying economic assumptions that are embedded, right? So the last thing I'll say, and this goes back to expectations investing broadly speaking, which is the assumptions about future value creation, investment needs, all that kind of, that's implicit in a multiple. It's implicit. It's not that it's not there, it's implicit. And the DCF model, it is explicit. Right? So people go, oh, well, you just changed the assumption a little bit, the value. Absolutely. But that's explicit. So the question is, would you rather have something implicit and buried, and then we don't really know exactly what we're doing, or explicit and overt, and then we could debate, right? And then that, that to me, of course, the latter is a vastly, vastly more attractive proposition than the former. So, so economic cul-de-sac might be a little bit strong, but, but that's, that's the basic idea. And then a related idea I'll just mention quickly is there's a presumption often that growth in and of itself is a good thing. And what we, and we demonstrate this in a simple appendix in chapter one, I think it is actually that growth in and of itself is not value. It needn't be value creating. So the, the key concept is growth adds value when a company's earning above the cost of capital, right? So qualifying growth 
in fact, the way you should think about it is return on capital, cost of capital spread is first and foremost, and then growth amplifies, right? It makes a good thing better. And if your spread is negative, it makes a bad thing even worse. One of the challenges systematic value investors have had in the new economy is that many of the standard accounting metrics and multiples we are used to using haven't worked as well with new economy and technology companies like Amazon and Google. Michael helped us understand why that is. I want to ask you, you know, one of, one of the things a lot of us that are value investors have gotten wrong here is, you know, looking back at Amazon and Google, I mean, those, those companies were clearly attractive values in the past, but, you know, our standard metrics did a terrible job of, of judging them. And so I'm wondering, you know, this gets at the issue of intangible assets that you mentioned before. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about that and may, maybe what value investors got wrong about those types of companies. Yeah, thanks, Jack. I mean, the first thing I say again, value is just buying something in less than what it's worth, right? So I, I I don't want I don't want people to think when they hear value investors, we only buy statistically cheap things, right? So that that value growth distinction, I feel, I mean, Buffett's talked about this. I feel that distinction doesn't make any sense, and I'll just uh, underscore that. But just a level set, and you're asking such a profound question, and really is it permeates the whole industry. Is you know, going back to 1970s, tangible investments were double those of intangible investments. Tangible, these are things you can touch and feel. So think factories, machines, inventory, right? T touch and feel. Intangible assets by definition are non-physical, right? So these are things like software code or instructions or training or branding, those kinds of things. And so that was two to one tangible, intangible. And now that relationship is flipped. So twice as much intangible than intangible, than tangible. So the, the, so that's the basic observation. I think most people will agree that it makes, it makes common sense, but here's why it becomes tricky from, from an investing point of view is tangible investments are historically have always been on the balance sheet, right? So you capitalize them and depreciate them over time. By contrast, intangible investments by convention are expensed. And so as a consequence, they show up as an expense and hence they, uh, they, they hurt earnings, right? You have less earnings. And so, um, the key question is of the spending, let's say SGNA spending, what percent of that SGNA is necessary to maintain the business and what percent is discretionary in pursuit of value creating growth? And I think when you talk about these sort of large companies, what I think the market may have missed is that they were making enormous investments that were showing up in their income statement, which made their earnings look very modest relative to their actual economic propositions. And, you know, today we have very specific examples of things like, you know, think of software as a service, you know, it may, it might be very expensive for me to acquire you as a customer, right? So my customer acquisition costs may be relatively high, but once I've got you as a customer, I know that there's going to be a stream of cash flows going down the road, right? So from an accounting point of view, however, and, and presuming that that's an NPV calculation, right? That it's good for me to, to have you as a customer, the faster I grow, the more I'm going to lose money, right? Which is horrible in some ways, right? So I think that's, that's the distortion we have to, we get, we have to get past. So. You know, the report we wrote about this was called One Job. And what we, what we argued for is that as an investor, you need to go down to the basic unit of analysis, right? Which is understand how that company makes money and then separ separately focus on the cash flows in order to understand the prospects, right? So if you do those two things, and again, you know, you know Jack, you've, asked, you've sort of said this long-term thing. And all, I mean, you, you want to have a North Star, right? On, in all these cases, you want to have a North Star that guides how you think about these things. And that's a good example of, the accounting is just not kept up with the actual underlying economics. Our most popular podcast of the year was our interview with Research Affiliates founder, Rob Arnott. Rob has done extensive research around market bubbles and how to define them. And given that many investors think we are in a bubble today, we wanted to get his thoughts on the market's valuation and put that into context when it comes to bubbles. I find it interesting. People talk about the tech bubble, the Japan bubble, and it's always in retrospect. And if it's in the present, um, 
it's more framed as a question. Uh, I think Tesla might be a bubble. GameStop looks like it might be a bubble. Why not rigorously define the term bubble in a fashion that can be used in real time? So we did that in 2018. The definition is really simple. Firstly, start with a valuation model like discounted cash flow. What assumptions do you have to make about future growth to justify today's price? If those assumptions are extravagant and implausible, you might have a bubble. A check on that is uh, the second question. Does the marginal buyer care about valuation models at all? So is Apple a bubble? No. You have to use aggressive assumptions to justify today's price. They aren't extravagant. They aren't implausible. They're just aggressive. Um, and there are some marginal buyers of Apple who aren't buying the Apple story. They're buying a valuation model in which they're using aggressive assumptions, and they're saying, look, this stock is sensibly priced. Okay, so that's not a bubble. It's expensive, but it's not a bubble. Um, Tesla, uh, if you take last year's sales, 2020 sales, if you increase it by 50% per year for the next 10 years, then Tesla in 2030 will be 55 times as large as it was in 2020. 55 times as large. By comparison, Amazon, growing at 26% a year, compounded, tremendous growth, is 11 times as large as it was in the year 2010. So 11 times versus 55 times. Do you think Tesla will have five times as much growth in the next 10 years as, as Amazon had in the last 10? That seems to me implausible. Let's take a further assumption. Let's assume that their um, net profit margin, uh, uh, gap accounting profits in the year 2030 are as high as any major automaker has had in any year in the last 10 years. Well, that'd be a little over 10% after tax profit margin, um, uh, gross margins uh, before uh, the discretionary expenditures north of 25%. Uh, if they achieve that in 2030, and you discount that back to today, you get a value of $430, not 600. Okay, so yes, Tesla's a, a bubble if the marginal buyer doesn't care about valuation models. Have you met any Tesla investors who say, I'm looking at a discounted cash flow model, I love, I love the outlook for the company on a valuation basis? No, they don't exist. So that's the definition, and it is an actionable definition that can be used in real time. That's, I think, very important. Now, the next the third part of your question is, what can investors do about bubbles? That is trickier. Bubbles can last longer and go further than anyone could possibly imagine. So be very careful about shorting bubbles. You don't have to own them, but shorting them is very dangerous. Um, my favorite example is the Zimbabwe stock market during the early stages of their hyperinflation in 2008. In the summer of 2008, if you said this country's experiencing hyperinflation, it looks like it's about to get out of control. The last thing I want to do is own stocks in this country. I'm going to actually short them. I'm going to short the Zimbabwe stock market, but I'm going to do it prudently, just 2% of my portfolio. Well, the first six weeks of summer, the Zimbabwe stock market, the currency fell tenfold in six weeks. 
So people didn't want to have any Zim dollars uh, that they could possibly avoid holding. And so they put money into the stock market and it went up 500 fold in Zim dollar terms, 50 fold in US dollar terms in six weeks. By the end of the summer, the currency had fallen another hundredfold. The stock market essentially fell to zero and, dis and stopped trading. So you would have been absolutely right, but in the intervening weeks, you would have gone bankrupt. Uh, be very careful with buying. We also asked Rob about the rise of indexing and what it might mean for the market and active management going forward. You reference index funds, and I wanted to ask you about those next. Um, you know, obviously, indexing continues to rise every year. We're seeing more and more investors indexing. You've called indexing a great idea with a massive Achilles heel. And I'm wondering if you could talk about what that Achilles heel is and what you think about index investing in general. Think about um, <clears throat> stocks that are priced too high relative to their future fundamentals. Now, we don't know what their future fundamentals are, but if the company is destined to perform worse than the market expects, it will underperform. If it's destined to perform better than the market expects, it will outperform. Now, if you had a crystal ball and could create a fair value weighted portfolio, cap weighting will assuredly overweight all the overvalued and underweight all the undervalued stocks. Okay, that's a given. Indexers have faced that criticism ever since the S&P was launched in 1957. And they've had a very ready retort to that. And that is, that's true. So what? You can't tell me which stock is which. Well, you don't have to know which stock is which. If you break the link between the weight in a portfolio and its price and the price of an asset, then an overvalued stock might be overweight or it might be underweight. An undervalued stock might be overweight or it might be underweight. Now the errors cancel. So roughly half of the portfolio is underweight, roughly half is overweight. That gives you a structural alpha um, that is directly proportional to whatever errors the market is making in pricing assets. If it's a mean reverting error, you will get an alpha by breaking that link. So uh, that much we know and can prove. Um, the um, the issue um, becomes pretty straightforward when it comes to what do you do about it. Anything you do that doesn't tie the weight to the price is going to give you a value tilt because growth stocks priced at premium multiples are likely to be downweighted. Value stocks trading at deep discounts are likely to be out overweighted. And this ironically holds true whether you're using fundamental index or a minimum variance strategy or equal weight. They all have the same alpha engine. This is something that none of the practitioners offering these products will talk about, but their alpha engine has nothing to do with equal weight or minimum variance or anything else. It has to do with breaking the link with price. If you break the link with price, then as the price soars, all else equal, you're gonna to wanna to trim. As the price tumbles, all else equal, you'll wanna to top it up. And so what winds up happening is you earn a rebalancing alpha from contra-trading against the market's most extravagant bets. That's the alpha engine for um, any of the smart beta strategies that truly deserve the label smart beta. Although there's a lot of stupid strategies these days under the label smart beta. <laughs> Do you ever worry that index funds could get too big? You 
know, as the as the rate keeps going up, as the percentage of the market keeps going up, you have some people who give you doomsday scenarios in terms of how this could end really badly. There won't be price discovery or something like that. Do you, do you worry that that eventually there's a level where index funds could get too big? And do you think we're anywhere near that? Well, firstly, uh, price discovery will always happen. Um, if index funds are 99% of the market, there's 1% making active bets. Does that mean that that 1% is gonna beat the index funds? Collectively, not necessarily, because if the index funds own the market, except for 1% of it, and if that 1% owns the same portfolio as the index funds collectively, then they can't win. This is what Bill Sharp pointed out in his famous paper, The Arithmetic of Active Management. It doesn't mean that some active managers can't win if others are losing. It just means that they can't collectively win. So one question that I think, I've never had it asked in any finals presentation with any client, but it should be part of every um, interview with a potential active manager. And that is, if you're so smart, if you're going to add value in the long run, who is the loser on the other side of your trade and why are they willing to be stupid? If they don't have a good answer to that, then they don't know their own alpha engine properly. So with Rafi, the answer to that question is very simple. We contra-trade against the market's biggest bets. The people on the other side of our trade are those who are momentum-chasing trend followers who like to load up on the most beloved, popular, and expensive companies. And am I confident that they'll lose in the long run? Yeah, I am. So there is a loser on the other side of the trade, and it's not, it's not the index funds because they just own the market. It's the active managers who are momentum-chasing, growth-tilted, uh, popular, popularity-weighted strategies. Thanks again to everyone who took the time to listen to Excess Returns in 2021, and thanks to all those guests who took the time to talk to us. We look forward to continuing our investing learning journey with you in 2022. See you next time.